we can hear lots of things, particularly in an age where there's so much availability of books, ministry, media, all sorts of things. But the truth is, and the truth has always been, that Scripture is the divider. Scripture is the plumb line that we measure everything by. And the reason that I'm going to do this series, I explained last week, is that when you lose sight of that plumb line, nothing in the kingdom works. Because the kingdom works in a particular way. And when we lose sight of that plumb line, that's when we get stuck and frustrated that this faith that we have doesn't seem to be working for us. And over the years, and well, perhaps for decades now, Cheryl, have seen, Cheryl and I have seen people who are stuck. And the reason is that we lose our anchor point in the truth of the gospel. We add lots of things in, we plant lots of seed because it sounds exciting, but when the garden comes up, it's not the garden we thought it was going to be. And we end up like stuck because we're confused and we're going like, what's right, what's wrong, whatever. And the truth is that if we understand the gospel, the gospel is the power to change everything. And Martin Luther, um, for all his faults in other areas, changed the world. But the reason he changed the world is he believed the word of God. And in particular, he believed what he read in the book of Romans. He saw a gospel of grace and a gospel of faith. Not a gospel of religion or works. And that changed his world when he proclaimed that. Now, I just thought, I'd already felt from God to do this, but I thought it was interesting when I discovered that it's actually, on 31st of October this year, it's 500 years since the 95 Theses were nailed to the door. What brought about that change? Here's what brought about that change to the world. Martin Luther was a scholar. And he got hold, he, he felt that with the advent of the printing press and the ability to uh, send things out around the world, what he, would, what he wanted to do was to prepare a translation of the Bible in German. And instead of um, going using what the church of that day was using, which was a Latin translation, he went back to the original Greek. And what he discovered is that the Bible he'd been reading for years didn't say what the original Greek said. That, that it had been translated and it had been spoken about in a way to allow um, men and religion to control people's lives. And when he saw that, he... Well, he, all he wanted to do really was start a debate, but actually what he did is he started a revolution which we now call the Reformation. And I think it's really interesting that actually the, the Reformation in England started in Cambridge. The first 
uh, Reformation, Grace and Faith sermons were preached in a little, little church hidden away in the centre of Cambridge. Uh, there's an area of Cambridge that became known as Little Germany. And you can still go and see the pulpit. It's still there where the first preach of, of, about this, what Luther discovered about the gospel is there. It's still there, Ridley's and Latimer's pulpit. The verses that began to change everything, I want you to look at them because we're going we're gonna to stay there this morning. One, it's Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. We are not going to go quickly through this. We're not going to go quickly through Romans. It's not, you know, we need to train ourselves away from soundbite theology. Because soundbite theology is what's planted the odd seeds. And, and so I'm not going to go quickly through this. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through it. But the good news is that tomorrow morning, if we've got your contact details, you get chapter one of the book that goes with it, delivered by email. Okay? So um, you can make notes, and then you can compare your notes with what I actually said when you read the book. See if you got it all. But we have to get this deep down inside us. Because as Paul says in this letter, the letter to Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, and it says... For, that, for I, that's Paul, am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for men unto salvation. And then he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And it was seeing those verses that absolutely shattered Luther's world. Because when he understood what that was saying, he realized that everything about his life was set up wrongly. Everything he, he placed his value in was valueless. And that birthed in him a, a, an incredible value for the person of Christ. When it says in, in that, that verse, from faith to faith, what it means is by faith alone. It's not a, it, it's, it's for, when the Bible repeats something, it's for emphasis. So it means for, by faith alone. The, 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 the whole of the kingdom of God, the whole of our Christian experience from salvation when we initially get born again right through to the moment we die and we get raised again and we go to heaven and then we come back for the second coming. The whole of our Christian experience is by faith. It's by nothing else. It's by faith alone. And every second of that time, that walk, is also meant to be by faith. It's not just that initial experience that we, we, we you know, yeah, I, I believe it, I've said the prayer, I'm a Christian. That, that's by faith. But then somehow we, we lose track of that and try and do all sorts of other things. And 
it's from faith in the very beginning to faith throughout your life. That's what that's saying. You live by faith alone. And Luther realized that he was actually living by religion and works. And that because of that, the people that he was trying to help were actually just dying, literally dying. And the thing about the gospel is this, is it's radical. If you, if you think about it, what we are saying is there is salvation for everyone who believes. Irrespective of what they've done. Now, that in itself is hugely radical. And, and most people who aren't Christians can't get their head around that one for a start. But then when you realize the implications of how radical it is, you realize that it changes everything about a person. Because as Paul says, it is the power that changes things. The gospel, the truth of the gospel, the, what, what Christ has done for us is the power that changes everything. Not just changes everything so we can do church and we can start a movement and we can have a great club, but changes everything about our life, about our ability, about what we can see. It causes heaven to be able to break through onto earth, to heal, to set free, to deliver. It's the power that changes everything. It's a radical gospel. And, and I find it so sad that we made this gospel so small in the church today. That, like, we've, we've, almost, we've almost gone back and said, God can't do anything unless we're amazing. God can't do anything unless we've got millions of pounds in the bank so we can put the best show on. God can't do anything without us. And the truth of the gospel is we can't do anything without God. And, and we, we put this huge effort in when God is trying to refocus us and say, it's all about me, me living through you. Do, do you get that? Okay. Now, this gospel, Letters to Romans, I, I call it a book. We, people talk about the books of the Bible. It's actually a letter. It was sent by Paul to the church in Rome that wasn't actually established by him. It was established by somebody else, but he wanted to go there. He was going to go and visit. Now, this, this guy, Paul, a lot of you know the story. Well, you probably all know the story. He set off. He didn't set off as Paul. He set off as Saul. And Saul describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means I'm proud and I'm better than all the normal Hebrews because I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he was, he was the rising star of the religious world. He was the, the superstar of Jewish religion. He was trained by the top guy, a guy called Gamaliel. And the thing that was notable about Paul was he had an incredible zeal for the law. So much so that his whole standing, his whole value, his whole life was tied up in that status that he'd achieved. The thing is, he excelled in the church of his day. But he ended up murdering Christians. You see, 
you can have an incredible zeal for something, but unless it's rooted in the truth of Scripture, it will produce fruit that is unwelcome. Zeal and hunger and, and noise and how excited we are is not the best measure of whether we've got it right or not, or whether we've understood the gospel or not, or whether we've been effective for the kingdom or not. You see, there are millions and millions of believers across this world who are zealous for God, who, who are passionate about God, but that doesn't mean they're right. You see, we need to get past what we've created and what we've created is this idea that if somebody is excited and zealous and passionate, they must be right. If they've got this fantastic presentation, they must be right. If they've got the book published, they must be right. No. Scripture is what is right. The gospel is what is right. The truth that is there is what is right. And Paul has this encounter with Jesus where basically he gets knocked to the ground, ends up being blinded. And he turns to Christ. And the thing that Paul does is he doesn't rush out and immediately decide he's the, the guy to teach everybody. He basically disappears, he, he has an initial burst of excitement and then he disappears for the, from the scene for quite a number of years because he has a problem and his problem is this, that he's experienced one thing and what he's experienced doesn't line up with what the way he thought things worked. See, Paul has put his whole, whole life, his whole passion, his whole value system into this religious system and yet he ended up opposing Christ instead of being for him. And the thing is, Paul can't get his head around that. So he goes away and instead of sort of um, sitting with the apostles and all that, he goes away and he listens himself to God. There's just him, God and scripture. And Romans, more than any other book he writes, is the product of Paul's understanding of how what he'd experienced lined up with Scripture. It's, it's Paul's explanation of how everything he believed was wrong and how he understood it was wrong and how, when he read Scripture, it proved he was right. Just like Martin Luther, when he reads it in Greek, he realizes that everything he's seeing, everything he's experiencing is wrong. And when he, he sees the truth, he goes, that's how it works. And when we see the truth about grace and faith, we realize that's how it works. We realize that's how the gospel works. That's how we, we get the truth that sets us free. That's how we get what we need to get healed. That's how we get rid of all the baggage that we carry. And, and Paul has this radical, radical conversion. Um, Acts 9, it, it describes how this man who'd been murdering Christians suddenly gets recognized as somebody who's now switched sides in such a way that everybody notices. And uh, Romans 9 says this. Acts 9, sorry, Acts 9. He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. That's quite radical, isn't it? 
if you, if you have an, an experience, what he's doing is he's going back and he's speaking to the very people he taught exactly the opposite to. And he's saying this. Immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, why, why are they amazed? Because this is why they're amazed. Isn't he the one that was in Jerusalem and he destroyed those who called on this name, that's Jesus, and had come here, come to where we now are, solely for the purpose of collecting us all up, arresting us, putting us in chains and taking us back to where we started. So Paul was hunting down believers. And all of a sudden he's preaching to unbelievers, the same thing as the believers are saying. And it says, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah. I want you to see this, that, that what happened in Paul, there was an encounter with Christ. But more importantly, what happened in Paul was he changed his mind. He changed the way he thought. He, he changed his whole pattern of thinking. And he brought the way he thought into line with Scripture, not into line with what he'd heard from other people. And in letting Scripture change his mind, it unleashed the power of the kingdom through his life and in his life. It's kind of close to home for Shovel and I, this, because we, some of you might, I think you met Shovel's mum over Christmas. And Shovel's mum had, had gone a long way away from, from God. And... Uh, so th I think it was after we were married, quite a while after we were married. And you know how sometimes you get these things in the newspapers that something comes up like, I don't know, somebody discovers a tomb and they reckon Jesus is there or there's a, there's a, a mysterious gospel that appears that nobody's heard about and says completely the opposite of the Bible and all that sort of thing. And, and they're all, always proved to be hoaxes. In fact, they're, they're generally not new. They've sort of been round and round before and then they get republished about 10 years later and... And they last about two weeks. Anyway, she'd been reading one of these in the Daily Mail. Because um, apparently somebody had found a tomb in Israel with somebody buried in it called Jesus. Jesus is an ordinary name in Jewish culture. <laughs> he was called Jesus. There's millions of Jesus. There's still millions of Jesuses. Spanish guys called Jesus. Any, everybody heard of them? They're Jesuses. Okay, so she'd, she'd read this and she got herself, and so we, we talked to her and, and didn't get anywhere. Anyway, what she did is she went away and thought about it and pondered it. And she, was, she, she started reading a little bit of the Bible, and it was this passage, this radical transformation in Paul that she couldn't get past. And it, and it was the fact that there was such change in his, her life, his life, that she couldn't get past that to say Christ is not real because there was no other explanation for what had happened to Paul and, and it was that that led her to Christ that, that made her um, be a believer and the gospel is meant to do that you see 
the truth is this, and I want you to put this right up the front of this series. A radical gospel produces radical change. A radical gospel produces radical change. So Paul's saying this gospel is the power of God. So if we aren't seeing change in our lives, it's probably because we're not understanding the gospel or we're adding other things to it or we've got ourselves confused, we've got ourselves mixed up. Because we should be seeing radical change in our life and, and believers generally should be seeing radical change. We shouldn't be seeing what we see, which is believers stuck, believers depressed, believers miserable, believers joyless, believers going, oh, I'm useless, I'm terrible, I'm pathetic. We shouldn't be seeing that. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to change everything about a person. And so we should be seeing that. And, and if we're not seeing that, it's probably because we haven't understood the gospel. Or, or we've lost track of it, or we've lost sight of it, or we've, we've stuck some other things alongside it. They've grown up, grown up with it. And it's all become a bit of a jumble, and nothing's quite working right for us. See, it's particularly... I guess, not poignant, but I guess probably not the right word, but it's particularly uh, appropriate that we talk about this at, the, at this time. Not just because it's 500 years since, since Luther had this revelation, <coughs> but more to the point, there is a resurgence of confusion on both edges of the gospel. And, and that is because there is an availability through the media to create a movement very quickly. And, and pe you know, young, young people, we, we, you know, we know some of these young people. Just go off. Because they see stuff on YouTube and it looks exciting and this guy looks attractive and, and, it, and it gets them excited. And, it, and it, it goes down one of two routes. And it always has. And I'll t I, I, can, I can tell you, it's nothing new under the sun. It's always gone down these two routes. How do I know that? Because they're exactly the two things that Paul is writing about in the letter to the Romans. The two extremes that he's trying to address. So nothing new. Been there for 2,000 years. Paul, spotted, Paul had the same problems we've got. People getting picked off at the edges of the gospel. Young people, passionate for God, hungry for God, getting led down stuff that somehow manages to make them people you don't want to know. And somehow get, gets them, sets them against the church and against people. They become critical, they become judgmental. And, and you've, got, you've got this, there's a whole group of people and a whole idea out there that, that we translates like this and we we all we all know about it none of us like it but we we seem to get caught up in it and it i guess it's called repent or burn everybody is a terrible sinner you should be hit with your sin all the time repentance 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 crucify your flesh crucify your flesh crucify your flesh and the thing is that that's attractive to young people because they're hungry for god and they think, I want to be zealous for God, so I've got to do this. And that's, that's what motivated the bulk of what Paul writes about. And it's not surprising that we are quite accepting of religious things. It's not surprising that we operate on the idea that 
um, how can I put this? Basically, God rewards us for what we do. God rewards performance. And it's not surprising we operate and think that that's the way things must be, because that's the way most of the rest of life is. That performance gets rewarded, doesn't it? So we are trained all most of our lives on the basis that what we do determines what we get. And we do things in order that people are pleased with us so we can get on, so we can get good marks, so we can get the pass, so we can please our boss, so we can please the person we live with, so we can please mum and dad, all, all the rest of it. And we train to think like that. So it's not surprising we operate subconsciously and consciously sometimes on the assumption that God must be like that. God must operate on that same basis because that's how we've always been trained. And, and when you think like that, the only way you could, uh, if, if, you, if you really want to go after God, then the only way you can go after God is to try harder, do more, push through, press in, break through, cry out, do all the things and um, pray more, read more, do more, do more. And, and it becomes this thing that you, you, you're always trying to do more in order to please God. Now, when that gets into the core of us, it gives us another problem. Because it stops the power of God working. Because it's not the gospel. I'll say that again. When that gets into the core of us, it's a real problem. Because it stops the power of God working because it's not the gospel. Let me explain what I mean. When we subconsciously or consciously work on the idea that God will only do things in response to what we do, for instance, how holy you are. So there's this idea that if we were all more holy and we all prayed and we prayed 24-7 and we were all cleaned up our act and God would just come into this nation on a highway of holiness and we'd have revival. Interestingly, how we use Old Testament ideas in the New Testament church. You see, and, and then we give people the idea that, that they're never good enough for God. That there's always something in their life that needs fixing. That every time we come to church, because we're so intent on breaking through, opening the heavens and creating a portal which the outpouring begins in and all that sort of stuff, we create this idea and belief in us that it's our fault that it's not happening. And then the guy at the front exhorts you next week picks on a particular thing, you respond to that, and there you are again, crying, weeping, wailing at front because you responded to the altar call. And that's, that's, a, that's a charismatic Pentecostal extreme of it. There's just the same stuff ingrained in traditional churches. This idea that God responds to what we do. 
God doesn't respond at all to what we do. What he's looking for us is a response to what he's done. I'll let that sink in. Yeah, we'll come back to that one in later weeks. Or in fact, a lot of later weeks. Because that's, that's a biggie. So Luther, who's living in an extreme time of religious stuff, he, he sat there and he gets confronted by the same thing that will confront that belief system now. He gets confronted by Romans 3.28 and it says, Therefore, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That means a man stands right, he's made right with God, apart from what he does to please God. In other words, you can't please God. Stop trying. What you can do is believe him for what he's done and fall in love with him. They're different things. And then you get, once you start going down that route, because the natural response to that is to swing right over the other side and say, everything's okay. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I sin. It doesn't matter how off the rails I go. It doesn't matter if I don't go to church. It doesn't matter. You know, we, we don't, we're not bothering with church anymore. We're just going to have a little coffee club, two of us. And we, church is on the internet. Or I'm just going to go here. I'm going to go there. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if people sin. It's there, there. There's, there's no standards. And that's the opposite extreme. And Paul, Paul gets that. Because that is a normal response to grace, to take it to an extreme. And that's catching a whole load of people now. It's called hyper-grace. It's, it's only universalism in disguise. It's the idea that however bad you are, it's okay because everybody goes to heaven one day. And there's all sorts of stuff. You know, love wins, it's called. That's the, that's the phrase that goes with it. And they're both equally wrong. So what do you do? What do you do to release the power of the gospel in your life? I've highlighted those so you can see what I'm talking about. But the thing is, you don't preach against things. Okay? The way to deal with hypergrace or universalism or whatever is not to attack the guys that are preaching it or to attack the thing. The way to deal with hypergrace is to preach grace properly. The way to deal with re religion and performance and law and judgmentalism and, look, you know, like these religious people that look down through their noses at you, the way to deal with that is teach grace properly. So that's what Paul does. That's what I'm going to attempt to do. It's like walking like across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope, isn't it? I'm going to attempt it. Um, <laughs> Just a word of warning, there's a guy I, I read a lot of when I was younger called Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and he preached on Romans for four and a half years and didn't finish. <laughs> um, so there you go. So let's come back to that passage, Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for men unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith it's written, but the righteous shall live by faith. I'm going to just pick some things out of that. Gospel. I kind of think if I asked, I'm not going to, 
because we've got, you know, limited time. If I asked everybody in this room, I'd probably get 30 to 40 minimum different explanations of what the gospel is. Because I don't believe that many believers actually do know what it is. Not in the way Paul was talking about it. That word gospel is a translation of a Greek word, ugageglion. Ugageglion. E-U-G-G-L-I-O-N. E-L-I-O-N. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> Spelling in Greek is not my strong point. Um, it's where we get the word evangel or evangelism from. Now, I'm now going to ask you what the word gospel means because there's one thing that most people will be able to trip off the tongue. What's the word gospel mean? Good news. Okay, well, that's really, really good, isn't it? Because it does mean good news. Now, look at me and say, it doesn't mean bad news. Right. Look at the person next to you, and if you're going to attempt the high wire act, look at the person next to you and say, the good news is it's not bad news. So it's good news. Now, this word actually means a lot more than that. And it's in a particular... When you look at ancient literature outside the Bible, they, they've only actually found two or three instances of this word really being used in any form of literature. And the reason for that is it means not just good news, but nearly too good to be true news. It's, a, it's an extreme. It's extreme good. Look at the person next to you says, God's got extreme good for you. <laughs> it's extreme good. They're nearly too good to be new to, <laughs> nearly too good to be true news. And, and why is there so few instances of it outside the Bible? Because outside the Bible, there are very few things that are nearly too good to be true. Outside of Christ, there is nothing that is nearly too good to be true. But it is true. And that's why that Paul and the other apostles picked this word to distinguish it, that this is something exceptional. It's not just something that's a nice add-on to our lives. It's not just something that will make us feel good and make life better. It's something exceptional that radically changes a life and changes everything around that life. Right from the inward core of your very being to the outward expression of it. It's too good to be true, Neely. You see, God is after relationship. And how can I put this? It's really difficult to have a good relationship with somebody that jumps on every fault that you've got and whose finger just points at you all the time. And Paul's saying, that's not who God is. It's not who he is. Let me tell you about the nearly too good to be true news and change your picture of God. Because I thought God was like that, says Paul. And he isn't, because I've met him. Let me put it this way. There's a statement I just want to put up on the screen because it, it's a little bit lengthy, but it's, it's really important. 
God's purpose is not that you look constantly at your own inadequacy. Your own guilt, your own shame, and your own failure. We don't deny we mess up. But it's not God's purpose that you look constantly at it. But instead, that you look at him as he draws his heart, your heart towards him. You see him, you see his beauty, you see his holiness, you see his love, and you desire it for you. And then you say, God, how do I get that? Okay? That's the ground of the gospel. The ground of the gospel is not to make us feel inadequate. The, gra- the, the purpose of the gospel is so that we would know who we are and what Christ has done for us and be set free to a life of power and love. And to a, a life where, where, where God consumes our vision, that he becomes our everything. Because we love him, we know he loves us and we trust him. And we desire to be like him. Now, I'm going to say later on in this series, and then I'm going to show you how Paul says it works, is we can't do that ourselves. We can't make that transition ourselves. And because of that, Christ had to do something in us when we believed to make that possible. And that's the whole point of what Paul's saying and what Paul says right through the letter of Romans. Because he's saying... It's the power of God for salvation. Now, if you've done rock solid, you know that that word salvation is a translation of a Greek word that is sozo. Sozo doesn't just mean, I said a prayer, I'm going to heaven one day if I can get my fingers across the finishing line. Sozo means, it's a translation of a word that translated in other places differently in the Bible. So when you see they were made whole, that is sozo. When you say they were healed, that is sozo. When you say that they were delivered, that is sozo. When you say they were set free, that is sozo. Because the the, the original Greek word encompasses all that. And the way that the Jews thought about that, that, which is why they used that word, was salvation was for everything. Not just to get you to heaven and forgive your sins. It was to change your life and enable you to change other people's lives. So when Paul is saying... The, the gospel is the power of God for sozo. He's saying that this truth that I'm telling you about releases the power of the kingdom of God in you and through you to change everything around you for good. And that's what got the, the, the whole world excited in Paul's day. Instead of telling people how bad they were, he started telling them that that God was going to change them and they were going to make things good for themselves and others. Because he was going to give them the power to do it. Are you with me? Okay. I know this is like big stuff. the, The thing about the first week of any series is you have to set the scene. So I'm covering lots of different things. But... The third thing I want you to pull pull out of this is that it's for everyone who believes. Not everyone who does this, does that, cries out, shouts loudest, sings best, most holy, best prayer. No, for everyone who believes. That means it was received solely on the basis of belief. So we're not working on our doer, 
we're working on our believer. The gospel, what is, is it, this big word that means the nearly too good to be true news, about what Christ has done for us as a completely free gift. And it's solely on the basis of what he has done. Therefore, if you define something as solely on the basis of what he has done, what can you do to make that better? What can you do to make it worse? All you can do is take it or leave it. So what, 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 what the, the incredible thing about the gospel is it's solely on the basis of taking it, receiving it, believing it. There is no other qualification. And because of that, all the things we try and do to please God and all the things that we're urged to do in church and, and out of church to please God don't work. Because it's not how the gospel works. It's not how God set up the mechanics of the kingdom. It doesn't work. The only thing that works is faith. Believing what Christ has already done. You see, the thing about the gospel is it's solely about grace. Grace is what Christ has done for us, irrespective of whether we deserved it or not. Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 to 9, show how it works, show how the gospel works. Really simple. For by grace, let's read this out. For by grace, you have been saved. That's sozoed. Say to yourself, sozoed. Through faith. And that not of yourself, but it's the gift of God. So what did you do? Nothing. You believed it. Through faith. What else did you do? Well, you did nothing, did you? Because it's, it's his grace. It saves you. And it's not yourself. It's a gift. So you did nothing apart from believe it and receive it. Okay, if you've got that, we're getting somewhere. That's, that's the point for this morning. Right? The gospel works by grace through faith. There's two components. And that's where, where we go astray sometimes. And, and, and I'll talk about this in a later session. But all the guys who, who are over here saying, it doesn't matter what I do. It, you know, it doesn't matter whether I go to church. It doesn't matter whether I sin. You know, I'm covered by grace. It's okay. We all get to heaven in the end. Hitler's going to heaven. Love wins, etc. Yeah, that's grace. That's grace. But it's not faith. There's no application of it to the life that changes them. They've only got one of the components. That's the problem. We are not saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith. We apply it to our lives and it changes us. We can't say, I'm saved by grace, and then say it's not changing me because it's not grace. There's no faith application. And that's where people get a lot. You see, the trouble is that, that all, the, all the, the, the stuff you see out there talking about this, it's talking about grace. And if you're just talking about grace, it's right. But grace doesn't work on its own. 
it works with faith. The two can't be separated. And so we are saved by grace through faith. Have you got that? Okay. Now, the last thing I really want to say this morning is this. Equally, you cannot take grace out of the gospel. Because the gospel is about grace. It's about you getting something you didn't deserve, probably didn't want at the time you got it, and, and is much bigger than you've actually used so far in your life. But you can't add to grace. You can't put loads of other requirements on because the minute you put loads of other requirements on, let me just let me just use this as an example because I'm nearly finished. Let's say, um, I don't know who, who who feels like they've been in a, would like to be in an illustration. Sam would like to be in an illustration. Okay, this is my idea of building Sam. Now I want you to suspend your imagination. Well, not suspend your imagination, but suspend reality for the moment. Sam here has been in a terrible accident on the way to church. He's got both his arms severed off and both his legs severed off. Okay? He's in a bad way. Okay, so I'm using an extreme case. What does Sam need? Well, he needs a miracle, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah? He needs a miracle. Now, if Sam is sat there going, I need a miracle. Now, how many of you believe if Jesus walked in this room, Sam would get his miracle? Some of you didn't put your hands up. Some of you are not sure about that. <laughs> okay, let me repeat the question. If Jesus walked in the room, would you get his miracle? Yeah. yeah. Why is that? Because Jesus does that sort of thing, doesn't he? Yeah? Now, what, what would Sam have in, in relation to what Jesus did? Let, let me put it a different way. If Sam is sat there going, the reason I'm not healed yet is because I haven't done this. My life's not holy enough. I know how bad I am. I haven't prayed enough. Um, I didn't clean up this area of my life quickly enough. I can't get my healing until this is sorted in my life. Let me tell you now, this side of heaven, you ain't getting healed. Because you've moved out of grace. Because grace has nothing to do with what you can do. It has everything to do with what Jesus did. If I said the same illustration with Sam and said, okay, right now, Sam's missing some arms, missing some legs. Do you believe Mark can heal him? I've never healed anybody in my life, so I ain't starting now. <laughs> I went to medical school and dropped out after a year. That's what you get from me. Um, you see, I'm not doing the healing the minute we start looking at what we can do and whether we're good enough and whether... And, and then we go to an extreme like, oh, there's a healing anointing in the room. There's always an anoint, healing anointing in the room because when there's two or three gathered, there's Jesus. Yeah. How many are here? Uh, what? Yet yeah, front row qualifies. There's a healing anointing in the room because there's Jesus. Why? Because we have nothing to do with it. It's him. It's grace. And as much as we think it's us and we're trying to create something and make something happen and some, like, I don't know, like, if only I repented hard enough last week for, for that, that little thing that I did and I got angry on Wednesday and I was still angry on Thursday morning so God can't heal through me. 
Because we think both ways. I can't get healed because of this. And God can't heal through me because of this. Nine is grace. Because they're adding things onto grace. Paul put it this, this way, and I'm finishing with this. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And then he says, which isn't really another gospel. There are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Have you got that? We're disturbed. When we're not seeing the full manifestation of the kingdom, we're disturbed and we're applying something that's not the gospel or partial gospel. Because what he's saying there is there is not another gospel apart from the gospel of grace. You take grace out, the minute you start thinking that what God does depends at all on you, you're in another gospel. It doesn't work. And what Paul is saying is they've disturbed you because I thought that was established in you guys. And, and now, I see, now I see difficult times coming in your lives. Now I see like, difficult circumstances. And, and, and I see problems and I see financial issues and I see all sorts of other stuff, job issues, whatever. And, and, and I'm not seeing the power of the kingdom here because you've moved over from grace to thinking it depends on something that somebody else needs to do or you need to do. And if only we prayed harder. That's the usual response, isn't it? We'll pray harder. We'll pray more. No, we need to trust more. We need to pray, but we need to pray on the basis of the victory of the kingdom and declaring the victory of the kingdom and thanking God for what he's doing instead of trying to get God to do something. God's not going to overrule every free will on the planet to make your life happy. But we still cry out to him, God, make me happy. I've not got breakthrough yet. He does it on the basis of giving us the tools to change our life, not to make our existing life happy. Because you can't change everybody else. See, it's grace. Without grace, there is no gospel. 